Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I got the chance to talk with Kim Ray. She's a producer, a writer, and a director. You've probably seen her latest documentary about Lady Gaga on Netflix, Gaga 5'2". We talk about many aspects of her filmmaking career, including her time at USC Film School and uh, her experience producing documentaries. Let's get into it. And here we are with Kim Ray. Kim, thanks for being on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you about your film career, your TV career, um, and most importantly, uh, your documentary that's on Netflix. But uh, before we get into that, can you give us all a little background about how you got into filmmaking? Um, Yeah. I originally um, went to school for photography and, you know, in high school, I had a dark room in my basement and I put together a photography portfolio. And I really thought, you know, I wanted to be a photographer, even though I was always a writer um, and really into film, like really into indie film and also sci-fi action, like big movies. I mean, I grew up with Raiders of the Lost Ark and, you know, mm-hmm. all, all those huge Steven Spielberg movies and um, Ridley Scott. And so... I got into this art school on a scholarship and I realized, you know, within the first year that first of all, girls were not encouraged to be photographers. In fact, I remember one of my instructors saying that it would be hard, um, as a woman to get a job as an assistant, because you start off usually as a photo assistant, um, that it'd be hard for a woman to do that because you have to carry gear. (laughs) Oh jeez! And so you know you'll be you know you have to carry a lot of heavy gear, and you know people don't usually hire women to do that. So it really not only you know there's you know there's some math involved, you know. So we it was girls weren't really encouraged to be in the program to begin with. I think there were only two or three of us. Um, But besides that, you know, really quickly on, I realized that all of my assignments, I wasn't doing just like single photographs. I was doing photo series. So Mm -hmm. I would do like three or four things that would tell a story. And, and then I had a video class and I was just like, you know, I really think I want to do film, you know, because of course being a a film director would be so much easier (laughs) than being a (laughs) photographer as a woman or as anybody. Right. Right. And, um, but you know, I didn't have a lot of guidance, like career guidance from my family or anything. And I was paying for school for myself. So when you're a kid and you're, you know, taking out loans and working for yourself, you you just, you kind of do whatever you like, you know, I guess you, you do whatever is you think is fun or interesting to you. And, in some ways, you know, that was great. In other ways, I'm like, maybe I should have gone to law school. But, you know, <laughs> in some ways, though, it was really great to just pursue what I was interested in. And so I switched to film um, and I got into University of Michigan as a transfer student. And um, 
they had a really heavy duty uh, film studies program there. Like it was no joke, you know, cause it's, I mean, it's a very, um, you know, intellectual, uh, smart school. And so of course they approached filmmaking from a, from a very kind of, um, you know, esoteric kind of, we're really going to get into the nitty gritty of, of studying, you know, the theory behind filmmaking and the history of it. Mm -hmm. And then we also did production courses and we made short films and, you know, screenwriting courses where again, Michigan has an incredibly, um, you know, amazing English department. And so they treated film and screenwriting just as seriously as, as they taught English. Mm -hmm. And so, this, you know, we had great screenwriting instructors and, um, now are you guys working on digital at this point? What's the time frame here? No, no, this is, uh, this is, we were working on 16 millimeter. Oh, so fun. we were still on film. So yeah, this is back in the back in the, um, and video like video stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I, you know, and I had an, in, I did an internship and I learned how to use Avid and how to, you know, how to edit. And, um, and then after film school, I moved to New York. And so that was like a whole, that was the whole next step. I worked for Miramax, um, and really got a sense of the culture there and everything that's coming out right now about, about, uh, the Weinsteins oh, yeah. is, is so true. I mean, you just, everybody knew it. Like they were, not only was he just a screamer and would yell at people and you'd hear these horror stories of the abuse everybody had to endure. Mm. Um, but everybody just, you know, it was just, it's always been an open secret about Harvey Weinstein. And wow. Now what were you doing at Miramax? I worked at Miramax for a minute. I did not work there very long because I, I walked into Irwin Ryder's office and I said, I'm clearly not the type of assistant that you want. Why don't you just, you know, give me a check that we don't have to put, that I have to claim on my taxes and I'll leave. And wow. he did. He handed me a check request, which I walked over to accounts payable and I left because it was just, the culture was ridiculous. And Well, good for you for, for recognizing it and getting the heck out of there. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, all, I was never like a cheerleader, like, Bleh, you know, like I was, I've always been kind of a, a thinking person and that I just was never going to be that girl, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, so, um, yeah. And so then I ended up, uh, I landed in development at A&E television networks and I was there for almost three years before I was just like, you know, I don't want to be behind a desk and I don't want to be developing. I want to be on the other side of this making films. And so I applied to grad school at USC and got in and moved out to LA and, and went, went there for my MFA in, um, in production. That's exciting. Yeah. USC, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And and while I was there, I became really close friends with um, a guy named Ari Sandel. And he and I started an organization there that brought all the different departments together because at the time, um, the producing department, the Peter Stark producing department and the writing department and the production department and the animation department, we really didn't have any, you know, any connection with each other, which made no sense, right? It's right. like... Everybody in the production department wants to direct pretty much. There's a few cinematographers, a few editors, but mostly a lot of, if you're going there, you want to direct. And so you should be, you know, mixing it up with the writers and you should be mixing it up with the people in the Peter Stark producing program. Um, but we weren't. So we, we did that. And then we, 
we did mixers for that. And, and then we also, um, did stuff with Hollywood. So, you know, young, you know, assistants and up and coming executives and we did trips to Sundance and we did all that kind of stuff. And so Ari and I forged this really great, um, friendship and working relationship. And then when it came time to do our thesis films, he assistant directed mine, which I needed. And then he, he had an idea for his, but he didn't have a, a writer. And he was, he had friends who worked at like Endeavor and, and William Morris and, they were trying to get him like young writers and he, he knew he wanted to call it West bank story. And he thought maybe it was a bank in the Valley or something. He just thought that was a funny title and he wanted to do a comedy musical. Mm. And I had been in a band in college. I've always written poetry and song lyrics. And, um, I wrote all of our songs in our band and, and I, what kind of band, what kind of music did you play? It was like, it was like rock and roll. It nice. was, you know, it was, it was kind of grungy, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, Courtney Love-esque, but I'm not a screamer. I don't have that kind of voice. I'm a, a singer. So. Oh, good. I, yeah. never, I never went for those screamers. <laughs> yeah. I can't, it just hurts. It hurts your throat and your vocal cords. You can't sustain it. Yeah. I, I worked I, at the, uh, at the Roxy for a few years Oh, wow. And, you know, you, you get those uh, crazy bands where the guy's just screaming in his in his mic, you know. Uh, but one time I went and uh, the, the person screaming was actually a woman. But she uh -huh. she hit that same angry, guttural monster voice. And <laughs> I just don't see it, you know. <laughs> I can't imagine you could talk the next day. I don't know. But, you know, some people, they just have stronger... I don't know, vocal cords and throats. I don't, yeah, I don't know, mm -hmm. but that wasn't my thing. So, so yeah, so I, you know, I said to Ari, well, let me write this with you. And I had never been to Israel or to the West Bank or any of that. And so he had to kind of educate me on that. And I did a lot of, re I'm a, I'm a huge researcher on anything. And I did a lot of research and it was like, well, what do they have in common? You know, food, <laughs> the uh, Palestinians and the Israelis. And and we just kind of, you know, went from there and um, and wrote West Bank Story, the short, which then premiered at Sundance and went on to win an Oscar. So wow, that's quite so an you, ambitious jump from uh, a bank in the valley to the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he knew it was going to be about. He wanted it to be about like kind of like West um, West Side Story with Palestinians and Jews, but he mm -hmm. didn't. Um, you know, he didn't really have what the concept was. And it was funny because when, when I was like, well, why don't we make it, you know, in the West bank, he was like, yeah, but they would never, there, it, there's just not a place that where they would have contact. And, um, you know, I remembered when I was a kid, you know, McDonald's and Burger King always being at war and Coke versus Pepsi and, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. And so I, you know, I really thought it'd be funny to have like two fast food places that were, and he's like, oh, that, you know, cause he's been there. He's like, no, that would never happen. You just wouldn't. And I was like, well, what if it was like at a checkpoint? And, and it was kind of like, after a while, it was just like, just, let's just make it happen. Mm -hmm. Like we have creative license here. We can do whatever we want. And, um, and we did. And so that, you know, that was, and, and we had like a bunch of, you know, we were trying to, it was funny cause one, at one point we thought maybe the lead character, she could be a suicide bomber. And of course that wow. was not funny. That was, <laughs> was like, okay, this isn't good. This isn't funny. But, um, and that was a short film. Yeah, it was a short, I think it's, what is it? 17 minutes, something like that. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. You know, USC, I mean, you're talking the school that George Lucas went to, Zemeckis, um, Carpenter. Uh, can we can we get into that a little bit? You you went for grad school, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, was that always kind of sort of in the hallways? Are there are there pictures of these guys everywhere, breathing down your yeah. neck? Oh yeah, no. There's the Robert Zemeckis building and the the Lucas building, and absolutely. And you know, those guys come to events and they speak at the school. They really wow. do. Spielberg spoke. I was in. I went to some to one event where they were literally all there in the row in front of me. So, um, and Clint Eastwood was there and, you know, it, it, it's, the school really does, um, pull those, pull those guys in. And, um, you know, it's like, but one thing you realize when you get there too, though, is it is like any other institution or college where there are good instructors and who will change you know, the way you think about things and do things. And, and and then there are just mediocre ones where you're just kind of relying on your classmates and your peers Mm -hmm. to, to advance and to learn. And, um, it took like three and a half, four years Mm. to go through that program. It takes forever. And they, they just rob you blind. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, just, it's so expensive. It's, it's, it's a good experience largely because of the people that you, that you're, that you're in the mix with mm-hmm. your fellow, your fellow students, your peers, because every, pretty much almost everybody there is a film nerd, you know, mm-hmm. and a film geek. And you all have this common language and this common interest and in, in, in this common goal. And everybody you know, you're all you do. And this is why I even loved undergrad. I mean, when I was at Michigan, um, especially as a transfer student, I was seeing like eight, nine, 10 movies a week sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I was heaven, you know, and writing these long verbose, um, essays on these films and on, you know, how they related to, you know, American culture or Russian culture or to each other. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a class at Michigan that compared Ingmar Bergman and Woody Allen. You know, and I, I would have never thought to make that connection. But when you watch their films back to back, you realize how similar those two filmmakers are and, and a lot of the themes that they explored uh, and how and, and even how they filmed things, you mm-hmm. know. So, you know, and so when I got to USC, I had already had this really great um, experience as an undergrad and then in New York on the kind of business side of it and the development side of it. So when I got when I got to USC, it really was about taking it to the next level and, and applying it for myself and seeing, um, seeing what I could do, you know, and, and working with people who were trying to do the same thing. And so that was really, you know, if you're a ser- you know, if you're really serious about making films, um, it's, it's the place to go and it's the thing, it's the thing to do, you know? And I think, it focuses you in a way that just moving to LA and trying to make films on your own, um, ensure you're going to meet like-minded people and you're going to get in with actors and you're going to, um, you know, raise money and you're going to do whatever, but to spend two or three years, you know, working with instructors and peers going through the paces, it does kind of change you and make you better. Mm -hmm. So, Ultimately, it was a good experience. 
And then it was, okay, now how do I sell myself to Hollywood? And that's, you know, I guess that's where the real story begins. <laughs> All right, let's turn <laughs> that where, page. That's where, the journey, that's where the journey begins. <laughs> yeah, seriously, like that's the end of Act One, right there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And and so Act Two starts with uh, television. Yeah, I, well, Act Two starts with when I came out of USC. Um, I was I had a script called Love Fifty Point that was. Uh, a feature version of the thesis film that I had done at USC, which was mentored by John Landau who produced Titanic. And wow. cause I had worked, I was a read, I worked as a reader all through school. So, it, or as an, you know, as an analyst. And so I started at, um, Jim Cameron's company Lightstorm, and I started, um, as a reader for them. And then I ended up doing a lot of research for them. In fact, I, I still have on my shelf here, all the books, that they gave me that are all like secondhand books, um, paperbacks that were, that ended up being researched for avatar. Um, mm -hmm. they're all like sixties and seventies sci-fi. So I'm looking at one of the titles, it's called Moonbeam or moon, mm -hmm. Moonbane, Moonbane. And, um, so I, you know, so I had, I had good relationships coming out of USC and, and I had, so I had this script and, my agent was trying to set it up somewhere. And so I was going on meetings at all the studios and I really came out thinking, okay, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is going to happen within the next year. I just had this short film West Bank story that's premiered at Sundance and, you know, um, or actually at the time it hadn't yet, but it was about to. And, um, and I really, I just, it was, a, it was really, it was tough coming to terms with the reality of the business. And I, it wasn't until even just a few years ago that, cause I met with everybody. I mean, I was going into Bruckheimer's company. I was going in, I went into all the studios. I met with all of these executives, probably 85 to 90% male. Um, this is in the mid to late, like it's around 2006, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. And I, I now look at the statistics of female screenwriters who were being hired to write for the studios and who were selling spec scripts. And now the data is available and you can look at the numbers and they're shockingly, staggeringly low. Forget about directing, right. you know, <laughs> like the, it's like one or 2%. I mean, Fo even right now, Fox hasn't had a female helm director. And I just heard it the other day on the verge. I forget how many years. And the last one was like Beezus and Ramona, but it's been years since Fox has even released a movie directed by a woman. Hmm. So it was to say it was challenging to be a female filmmaker in 2006, seven, eight coming out of U USC is like the, is a massive understatement. It was hard. Right. So I was, so I came out and I was directing commercials and directing commercials, going out on meetings, trying to, trying to get a writing assignment, you know, and trying, so hoping that if I got a writing assignment, um, it would lead to directing, you know, mm. and even if it was just like a low, low budget indie, um, if I had, cause I write big sci-fi action. So I was like, well, if I can get a writing assignment on a big sci-fi action film, maybe I could get a directing assignment on a super low budget film, you know, was what was kind of where my mind was at. And sci-fi action, huh? 
Yeah. And that was the other thing. Like everybody was like, oh my God, you're a woman who writes sci-fi action. You're going to be, you're so set apart. Like you're going to have no problem <laughs> finding, you know, yeah, getting yeah. stuff. And, but I just don't think, I, I think, I just don't think I was taken seriously. I think, you know, that, that passive sexism that clearly exists because if it didn't exist, the numbers for female screenwriters and directors wouldn't be what they are. It's not mm -hmm. that they're it's not there aren't enough of us who want to write and direct. We're just we just haven't been hired. Is is the uh, discrimination uh, more based on that you're a woman, or more based on the story that they're reading is from a perspective of a woman? I think it. Yeah, I don't know. I think it depends. I mean, when I came out, my my story, Love Fifty Point Zero, had a male protagonist. Hmm. And a lot of my scripts have had male protagonists and the ones actually the ones who have had male protagonists have gone farther in terms of development and getting sold. Hmm. Um, then, then my stories with female protagonists, um, which I don't think is a coincidence, you know, most, um, you know, most of the things that do get sold have male protagonists, you know, we pay our male actors more and they, you know, a lot of things that are greenlit. And, and again, with, with television that has changed mm -hmm. with, with film, you still see billboards that have five dudes and one woman, you know what I mean? Like if it's some yeah. kind of ensemble, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, and especially in the genre that I write in, which is action sci-fi, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're typically male driven films. So if you write sci-fi action that has a female lead, it's going to be tough unless, you know, and then of course you look at, well, James Cameron did it, you mm -hmm. know, and that's why I love him. You know, he's done it. Um, and the new star Wars movies, the last two, uh, the main character has been a female and a strong female. Um, it's changing. I mean, it's changing for sure, but that's really only in the last two or three years. Right. Um, and I guess it's good that the people at top like Disney are, are sort of leading the way. They're trying. I mean, yeah. they're all, well, they're also being sued. You know, there's class action lawsuits oh. against them. Um, yeah. So they are scrambling to, to change. And, you know, and I, and I mean, I hate to knock it cause I liked the movie. I thought it was a good movie, but the last star Wars with the female lead, mm -hmm. um, there, and there've been lots of articles written about this. She is pretty much with the ex exception, I think of Mothra, the only female in the film. So all all of the other characters besides the lead in The Last Star Wars, like 95% of them are all male. Mm. Like all of the extras, all of the people that go with her on the, on the final mission, they're all male. And it's just, it's crazy. Like you look at that and you're like, really? They couldn't cast even the background extras 50-50 or they couldn't right. cast the people she goes on the final mission with 50-50? Like we can only have one woman in a movie yeah. or two or the god forbid we have a 50 50 male female cast but um so right. i don't know i'm going to see the new star wars on friday morning so i'm hoping it'll do better i love the sci-fi stuff but we before we get too far into the future um let's talk about gaga um, great now this yeah. is huge uh gaga five foot two uh it's a documentary about lady gaga and um from what I can tell, it debuted at Toronto and uh, then was released on Netflix. Did, mm -hmm. did, you get, right. did you get to go to Toronto? 
I did. Yeah, I was in Toronto um, for the for the premiere, and it was it was great, and it was great to see her see it because wow. we knew she had seen bits and pieces, but she really didn't want to watch the whole thing, and um, so it was that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's quite an undertaking. Part of it's at at the uh, Super Bowl appearance, the halftime performance. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. sounds like chaos. yeah it it was but by that point luckily that was the end of our filming Mm. so we started so chris and i um got the project june of last year and uh, he and i had worked together on an hbo show called sex on and then we had developed two things one for hbo and one for nat geo together and so he he was called in to potentially direct something for live nation and, and the one thing that he was going to maybe direct it fell through. And then, and then it was maybe this lady Gaga thing. And then he met with her manager, Bobby, and they really hit it off. And Bobby was like, well, why don't you come in and, um, just film her for a day and let's see if there's any chemistry and see how it goes. So Chris went in, um, with just, we had a, he had a Canon C300 and went in by himself and then he came back and we did like a little, um, very simple, uh, teaser trailer to give to live nation to be like, this is what it would be. And some of the stuff he filmed on that first day is in the film as the first day of the film. And, you know, within, within like a few a week or two weeks, it was like, we need a budget and schedule and, you know, we're making the movie. And so, um, so Chris and I set up a production office downtown LA and had a meeting with Bobby and really just got an idea of what her life was like. And we didn't know anything about the Super Bowl at this point, because this was June. Mm. There was no talk of her being in the Super Bowl to us. So you're figuring out the story right now. You're like, hmm, where is this going to go? Yes. In my mind, absolutely. Figure out what is the story. And she was making a new album. So that was really that was, that was kind of the focus was she hadn't made an album in three years. Um, she was going through a really rough breakup with her fiance, which of course they didn't want much of that in the film, but it was, it was so present in, in her life that it was hard to film around. Um, cause she was, you know, she was kind of in pain over that as anybody would be. Right. And that and, came through in the in the emotions on camera. Yeah, yeah, and so it was like, well, how how do you how do we explain this, or will we even have to? It's Lady Gaga; everybody knows her life, and so I mean, s- somewhat they know her life. But so we, you know, we decided to shoot it. So we realized very quickly, like really after the first day, that we weren't going to have a large crew for this. That this was going to be um, myself and Chris and you know, we had two production coordinators in the office, one of which we would bring on set. We had, uh, an assistant editor and an editor and, and that was it because, and then we would hire, you know, day players for camera and sound because we couldn't, you know, we had, we had rough ideas. Yeah. We're going to shoot next Tuesday, but then next Tuesday would happen and they would cancel on us for whatever reason mm-hmm. Her schedule changed. She didn't feel like it. 
her and Mark Ronson wanted a day in the studio by themselves. They previously thought it would be okay for us to come in. They didn't want us in. So, you know, that would happen or the opposite would happen. Hey, can you come, can you come to the studio in Malibu today? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. We, you know, and then this, you know, and then, so we would, we would hire people, um, sometimes with, you know, less than or 24 hour notice, you know, we had a, a group of, um, shooters that we used in some instances, just Chris would go in a lot of times if it were just her and her dressing room, it might just be Chris. Maybe mm. we would get another camera in there, but we didn't want to risk sending a camera into a, something like her dressing room without direction. Right. And there really wasn't room for more than like a sound person and a DP. We rarely even had a PA. Um, so we kept it really small. And then, and then the cameras that we were shooting on was the Canon C300 and we used Zeiss super speed lenses so that we could, you know, we were always very close to her. They were fixed lenses. Right. And we knew based on the access that we had, and obviously just working with such a small crew, um, that this would be the most interesting way to see her, right? Mm-hmm. To just to see her. And I had done a lot of, at this point, I had done a lot of reality television. And reality television, everything is set up. You know, you set up a scene, you're like, okay, so-and-so in this scene, so somebody's going to walk in and you're going to be surprised and you're going to be mad that they said this to so-and-so. Okay, let's go. Right. And you shoot it. With a documentary like this, Lady Gaga's schedule, I mean, we would get her schedule every day. It starts at 5, 6 in the morning and it's this, 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 and this. We're not telling her to do anything and we're not asking her to do anything. Mm-hmm. We are staying out of the way as much as we can and being flies on the wall and shooting what she's doing. We are actually, you know, we are documenting her life. And so we, um, we wanted to feel that we wanted to feel that we were that close to her and that it was that, that those moments were, you know, were small, but the Super Bowl would be the Lady Gaga that everybody knew, mm-hmm. you know, the Super Bowl would be the spectacle the pop star, this larger than life person. And it would, and that was so obviously the triumphant end of the film, because as we were making the movie, she didn't know if that album was going to be successful. She didn't know if her fans were going to accept this new side of her. I mean, we filmed her making music video for perfect illusion and we felt, you know, and we put internet reactions into that, into the sound, like, a lot of people didn't like it and they didn't, they're like, this is too rock and roll or this isn't dancey or this isn't, you know, like she's constantly being judged by everybody online and in, in the world. And we wanted to feel that like the weight of the world on this five foot two person's soldiers shoulders, you mm-hmm. know? And I'm, I'm like, her size always really struck me because I'm almost five, nine you know, so I, I feel as a woman, I've always felt tall, you know, and kind of like bigger in stature, you know, so her size really struck me. And one day we were editing and I was, I was just like, we were think, trying to think of titles. And I just remembered the Iggy Pop song, like I'm five foot one, blah, 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 blah. And we wrote that down as a possible title because when you're with her, like you just, she really is, you know, she's at the time, what was she, 29 or 30? And she's this small, physically small person who's, who carries so much weight. So, you know, all these people are working for her Mm -hmm. that are around her every day. You know, it's 
her assistant, her manager, her hair, her makeup, her, the the production team, the tour manager, the the band, the dancers. You know, it's it's a big, it's a pretty large group of people, and and it's a group of people who've worked together for like ten years. They, you know, since mm-hmm. she was twenty two, they've kind of it's been a lot of the same people around her. So they're a tight, they're a tight knit group too. So. I'm super curious about the uh, the schedule starting at 5 a.m. Could you give me just a taste of, of what she's getting into? I yeah, mean, so like it's at like 6 or 7 a.m. She works out, you know, she does spinning or personal training or whatever. And then, you know, then there are um, just various meetings about what she has coming up or, um, you know, again, she was recording an album at the time. So she'd go into the studio and work on music um, every day. And then, you know, planning for music videos, planning for photo shoots. And then there, and then there were the photo shoots and all the, you know, Mm -hmm. then, then she got into, so at first it was like the making of the album and everything that went along with that. And, and then it, and as she was doing that though, she had to plan for, and this is in the film, you know, so she's making music, she's being creative, but she also has to plan for when the record comes out. And when the record comes out, like all of this PR needs to happen and the PR needs to be planned. What is she, what is she going to, how is she going to frame it? What's the story? What is she going to look like? What is she going to wear? What's the aesthetic vibe? What kind of promotional materials are they going to put out with the album and keep putting out? Are there, what are they doing music videos for? When are they doing those music videos? How are they shooting them? What is she going to wear in them? (laughs) You know, what is the story of the music video? You know, all that stuff needs to be, prepared in addition to, you know, she's performing for Tony Bennett's birthday. She's performing for the DNC, you know, the rehearsals have to be done for those. Like those things need to be planned out. What songs is she going to sing at the DNC? She did mostly covers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a lot, you know, her schedule and people are asking her to appear places constantly, you know, right. and, 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 you know, she, so you know, you'd have the daily schedule of all the things she was actually physically doing. And then at the end of the daily schedule every day, there'd be a list of things that were on the to-do list, you know, mm-hmm. and all the things that were just like signed, like <laughs> there was one that was on the to-do list forever. I won't say who the actress is, but it was sign this actress's birthday card. <laughs> <laughs> and literally that was sign this actress's birthday card was on the to-do list for, I don't know, a month. You know what I mean? It was just like things like that, that, you know, that were just, that she had to do. And then there's, you know, familial obligations and trying Mm -hmm. to date and, you know. Now, did this make you reconsider how you schedule your own days? It did. It did. Because when you see, when you see how somebody, an A-list celebrity performer, artist, um, manages her life, it makes you, it, it really ups your, your idea of what are you doing in your life? Mm-hmm. How hard, are you, how hard are you working? You know, are you, have you become complacent? Like, are you working as hard as you could be? Are you getting up every day at six, seven o'clock and like just killing it all day long? Or are you kind of slacking? You know what I mean? Like how, how, how much are you really writing or how much are you really working on this project? Or that's one of the reasons I think as soon as I was done with this, I start, I got to work on, you know, and while I was working on the film, I was writing these spec scripts for Violet's new life. And, you know, 
shot that short film over the summer and it was, I was bound and determined I would finish the film by the end of the year. And I will, um, Mm -hmm. because I was just like, you know, life is short. And if you want to succeed, yeah, you, it, it starts when you wake up and doesn't end until you go to bed, you know? And that life though, she, that she's been living since she was 22 has also taken a toll on her. And you see that in the film too, mentally, and she, she's been talking about it for the last few months, mentally and physically, even at that age, 32, living that kind of life has its drawbacks and takes its toll on your body and your mind. There is only so much one person can do. Mm-hmm. So your original question was, how was the Super Bowl? So we had been filming since June before the Super Bowl in February, and we had it pretty much locked down how we did things. And by that point, I was really close. Um, her tour, she has this tour manager named Kai, who's amazing, and who really helped us with access and you know getting places and getting to her quickly. And and her whole team was actually really great. And by that, so by the Super Bowl in February, they all knew us and were really comfortable with us. So. You know, and and then there's her, the people who are documenting her, then there's us, there's, you know, her fashion people, her, you know, her, her singing coach, because she does extensive um, warm ups before every performance, uh, her family. So, you know, you come in, you go into that room, you make sure, you know, bring in my, I had a sound person and two camera people. I had a steady cam. And I had a our DP that we brought from LA, who I actually went to USC with, Emily. <laughs> and so that was that's another great thing about USC is that you meet, you know, you end up with these people who you trust, you mm-hmm. know. So I knew I knew Emily's had become a really amazing um, documentary shooter and camera person, and I knew I could trust Emily in this situation. Yeah, so much going on, and then you realize, oh, and they're playing football. That's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever. They're playing football. Yeah. No, it was, you got, yeah. you got bigger fish to fry. Right. So yeah. And then on top of that, during the whole time we were filming all this stuff, we were editing. So we were working with this editor, Greg, who we love, who we had worked with, um, on the HBO project that we did. And so whenever I was in the office, I was watching down footage and doing string outs and giving that to Greg. And we had a board with all the cards on it for the first act, second act, third act, because it was still structured uh, like a like a film. You know, it, it still had to be written in post because mm-hmm. we had all that footage and it didn't just write itself. So, um, so yeah. How did the how did working with Netflix go? Did you have much well, involvement there? I didn't have very much involvement with Netflix because the film was financed um, by Live Nation and mm. Chris, and then produced by Chris's production company, which was him and I essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he and I made the film from June to to April. We fin- we stopped. We finished editing in April. We shut down the production office. We were waiting for Gaga to watch it while to see if what changes we needed to make, if any, to the finished film that we had. And in in her manager, Bobby, who's so lovely had come in and watched, you know, had started watching cuts probably in December, January. And so he would come in and, and watch cuts and say, okay, well you can't show this or you can show this or, you know, Mm. 
you know, whatever, most of it, you know, it wasn't like it was heavily censored, but there were some things that were, you know, that were really personal. And so, so yeah, so we pretty much, um, stopped in April and then Netflix and then, and then Live Nation took it out to buyers. Netflix ended up being the buyer and they had minimal notes. So they came in with minimal notes, um, in June or July, the film was then color corrected, mixed, online releases were done for the music and, um, you know, all the paperwork was done. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and then it premiered at Toronto and was on Netflix, I think two weeks later, two or three weeks later, mm. September 22nd, I think. Yeah. Cool. Now, does is Netflix its home for forever now or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's what it's and in Netflix it's interesting I have a friend who does acquisitions at Paramount. They were briefly interested in the film. I have another friend who does acquisitions was doing acquisitions for um Universal and they put in a bid for the film. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really tough for the studios right now and in content because you know, the studios have these deals where they structure them, right? So they say to the filmmakers or the fi- or the financiers um, well, we'll give you, you know, pick a number, I don't know, 50% off of the back end after it earns what we pay you for it. So say the movie costs $2 million to make a movie, any movie, mm-hmm. um, it costs two million. So, so Paramount or Universal would say, okay, we'll give you the $2 million it costs to make the movie out of pocket. We'll give you that. Um, but then you don't get a profit on it until we make X amount of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then you get like 50%. So, or whatever it is. So they, they do these, these heavily structured deals, right. When it comes for profit sharing and whereas Netflix says, okay, you made the movie for 2 million. We'll give you 6 million. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. Yeah. You know, here, do you want this $4 million or don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to go with Paramount or Universal where you might eventually make $4 million after they release it theatrically and then it goes to on demand and then it goes to iTunes, which is another deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the eyeballs are on Netflix too. I mean, your film will be watched, you know? Right. That's yeah. That's fantastic. Is there, is there any advice you can give the the next breed? of filmmakers, whether they want to produce or or direct, give them a little advice. Um, just work really hard and, and no, no film history, no film theory, uh, so that you're smart about what you're doing so Mm. that you're approaching things, um, in a really knowledgeable way, as opposed to, you know, you've watched, a bunch of YouTube videos or you've watched, you know, all the movies of the last five or 10 years, like go back, mm-hmm. go back to the forties, go back to the fifties, go back to the twenties, you know, and, and really study filmmaking, um, and narrative, whether it's film or TV, you know, become, become an expert on, on this because, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a really serious business and, and you see, you know, the, the higher up I've gone, the more I've realized because there's so much money behind it. You really need to know what you're talking about. 
And so that would be my advice. That's really good advice. Thanks for being on the podcast, Kim. This this was great. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Violet's new life and everything else you come up with. I, I wish you the best with your career and hopefully we'll talk again soon. I hope so. Thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to check out the show notes at our website, IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter, at IndieFilmGrit, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough? Indie Film Grit.